um, our hearts have now been stirred because real life people we see have gone through the ringer just like us. So we're not alone. Uh, we have not experienced a temptation that everybody else hasn't already also experienced. So now we're looking to you, God, for the power and for the wisdom, for the way out, the escape valve from maybe some of the pressures, some of the painful situations that we're in. And we ask that you'd be our teacher then, that you'd use me, that there would be words here that would go right past um, uh, the resistances that we might have to the heart. And I pray that you transform us in this way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, AC3, I'm really glad that you're here. This series is about pain, so when you looked at the, you know, the topics for the, for the weeks, you might have looked at this one on debt, and you said, that doesn't fit for me. You know, you said, that, that doesn't, that's not exactly what I think about when I think about pain. Like, it's in a totally different, you view it in a totally different category, right? So for you, you think about, like, how the culture views pain, and you pretty much adopted the culture's credo, uh, or sorry, the, the, the culture's uh, credo about debt, and you said things like, debt is a pathway. So death is a pathway to have nice things uh, immediately rather than wait for them. And that's not very painful. That's actually pleasurable. Debt is also, we, we're told it's a necessity. So that's the box you have debt in. Debt is a necessity because some things are just simply too expensive to buy. You might also have debt in the, in the box or view it as opportunity, Right? So debt is opportunity to seed dreams. If you've got a big dream for something, you've got everything. You've got the vision. You've got the plan. You've got the unction. You've got the know-how. You've got the work ethic. You've got everything but the money. So it, maybe it's an opportunity. Also, you might look at it the way the culture looks at it. Debt is a tool, right? Like a lever and a fulcrum. It allows a person to lift heavy things, things that you wouldn't be able to lift on your own. That's one view of debt. And the truth is, debt is all those things. And it's actually one thing more. Debt is also slavery. And the Bible will say it like this. This will kind of be the verse we'll hang everything on uh, this morning. Proverbs 22, verse 7. God says, the borrower is the slave of the lender. That's just a dynamic. Once you're into debt, that is a dynamic that's axiomatic. Take it to the bank. No pun intended. That is what you're in when you're in debt. So here's two views of debt, right? One on the left side and one on the right side of the screen. So... Both views are really true, viewed from a certain angle, right? But it's like the Bible is viewing debt from a completely different angle than the culture. Speaking of viewing things from a different angle, uh, one of you was very helpful on Facebook this week. Um, on my news feed, this thing happened to fly by, and uh, one of the friends I have, you might also be a friend with her, she instructed all of her Facebook friends on the proper angle to take a selfie, right? And uh, as a photographer, I think then she was just doing us a, a huge favor. So apparently, and I, I took notes, so it goes like this, just slightly above the head, like so. Okay, like that. And, um, and so that's how you get that done. And never, she warned us, never from below, like this. That's very unflattering, okay? So just take that one, that's a freebie this morning. Do not take selfies like this same person right same person same weight same clothes same hairstyle but completely different look well friends when God looks at debt he sees it from a very unflattering angle okay God looks at debt from a very unflattering angle yeah living on what Dave Ramsey calls OPM you know what OPM stands for a three-letter acronym stands for other people's money right so yes living on OPM 
uh, works. It works to get us shiny new things that we can't afford. But God looks at the myths. He looks at the risks that are involved in debt. And God counts the total cost of debt in terms of its potential pain. And so that's why God takes a very unflattering view. Not surprisingly then, the Bible tells you to get out of debt as quickly as you can. You're in debt, get out, escape. In a particular passage, again, we're in Proverbs. The Bible says to people who've made themselves responsible for someone else's debt, it says, Proverbs 6, verse 2, if you've trapped yourself by your agreement and are caught by what you said, follow my advice and save yourself, swallow your pride, go and beg to have your name erased. Don't put it off, do it now. Don't rest until you do. Save yourself. Here's the, here's the imagery. Like a gazelle escaping from a hunter, like a bird fleeing from a net. Now that's some fantastic imagery, right? I mean, that's how averse God wants you to debt. Did you hear that? That's how averse, that's how debt averse God wants you. Like a, like a gazelle escaping from a hunter. Now, have you seen a gazelle? Trying to escape from a predator? I mean, have you watched one of those nature shows and seen it? The word intensity comes to mind. And just so that I have this picture burned in your head, I brought one of those nature videos with me. So turn your attention to the side screen. Don't turn your eyes away, AC3. Keep watching. There's a happy ending. of strength and drives his enemy into the ground. He leaves behind a mortally wounded cheetah. A thrust from his horns has put an end to one of the seemingly invincible Hatari clan. Now that's a video for a series on pain. So we had to have a little, little blood in there. I'm sorry for that. But I, I, I really wanted that imagery burned in our heads. Wasn't that something? I mean, when you look at that gazelle, that's what the Bible says, right? The Bible is telling you, be that debt averse. That's a picture God wants to give you today on debt. Debt is a cheetah that wants to grab you by the throat and kill you. And so be like a gazelle trying to escape from the predator. And the word that comes to mind is intensity. With everything in its power, with everything in your power, seek to get out of debt. With everything, marshal all of your resources, all of your energy, all of your focus. And with gazelle-like intensity, summon all your strength and save yourself. 
the Bible says. Now, you turn to the New Testament, you think maybe the picture's a little different. It's not. It actually gets a little even uh, uh, more unflattering. Apparently, you would know this from viewing American Christians, but the template in Scripture is that debt use should be very selective and rare, simply because the, the Apostle Paul will say, Romans 13, 8, owe nothing to anyone except your obligation to love one another. So hear what he's saying. Hey, listen, it's okay for you to, to have a debt to everyone just as long as it's a love debt, God says. That's the way you should feel indebted. Feel obligated to your fellow man, yes, just not financially obligated. Go ahead and feel in your heart that you owe people all sorts of things. Owe them your kindness. Owe them your servanthood. Owe them your consideration. Owe them your generosity. God wants you to owe that to everyone. Just don't owe them any money. That's the view. So what are you saying, Rick? You don't owe any money to anyone? Alas, that's not true of me. I do owe money on my home. Uh, we have a mortgage. And uh, we should probably note, these scriptures are warning us about the dangers of debt. They do not, however, suggest a moral prohibition on debt, since the Mosaic Law actually includes rules for the repayment of debt. So it is not immoral to get into debt, but it can be deeply unwise unless... The debt is for certain things, and I think Christian financial counselors will say that a mortgage is one of those things that can be a wise usage of debt. But let's look at the gist. Okay, there you go. Left and right. What's the gist? Is the gist in Scripture debt is a tool? Is that the gist? Is that the essential message? Is the message debt is opportunity? Uh, or maybe debt is necessity? Or is the view something totally different? Right? I mean, you can see it graphically there, right? The view is almost the opposite. It's not like it's immoral, but debt is a trap. Run from it. Seek to escape it. If you're in it with gazelle-like intensity as soon as possible, it's risky. It's a path of slavery and pain. That's the view. So today I want to highlight four ways that debt is painful just to really drive this home because I think we have to escape from the cultural view. To do that, I think we need some leaning on the other side of the picture. So first, let's talk about how debt introduces pain into relationships. The Bible's really clear about this. Proverbs 17, verse 18, it's poor judgment to guarantee another person's debt or put up security for a friend. Now, why is this poor judgment? When we get innerved, enmeshed in the debts of others. Well, it's pretty simple. People are working for banks are really good at doing risk assessment. See, they're good at sniffing out risky loaners of their money. They do their homework. They really have done their bean counting on this. So the reason that they demand a cosigner in certain instances of debt is precisely because they don't have any confidence that the signer will pay. It's statistically unlikely. So they get somebody else to sign on to the same loan. If the signer then doesn't pay, which statistically is likely, at a rate of about 72%, then you, the cosigner, will pay. And if that happens, three things are going to happen. Number one, your credit's going to get wrecked by someone else's irresponsible choices. Two, even if they do pay, you maybe didn't think that you might have taught the wrong lesson. You might have taught the wrong lesson. Like the lesson you thought you were teaching was, well, we're going to teach Junior some responsibility here, so we'll co-sign in this loan. But what actually were you teaching, really? Uh, the lesson really was that I'm going to buy something um, because, and I need your co-signing because according to normal rules for loaning money, 
I can't actually get this thing. I can't actually buy it. I can't really afford it. That's why I need a cosigner. So the lesson really is, if you can't afford something, buy it anyway. And that might not have been the lesson you were trying to teach. A third thing that happens is that some friendships have become strained or even failed, like actually broken forever due to a failure to repay a debt. Remember that little thing, $50? Hey, it'll just tide me over till payday. Wouldn't that be great? And then payday comes, and you're looking at the person with a smile on the face, and they just walk by. And now you can't talk to them. And now there's an 800-pound gorilla in the room. And the, and the relationship has totally changed because of debt. How does Thanksgiving Day turkey feel with the $6,000 elephant in the room? It doesn't feel so hot. Does it? And it's supposed to be fun and happy because there's grandma and grandpa and everybody's together. But there's a $6,000 slave master relationship that just got introduced to mom or dad or brother or sister dynamic. Friends, that's the truth. The borrower is a slave of the lender. Just take it to the bank. That's axiomatic. And it doesn't matter if it's with a person who shares your last name or your skin color because you're part of the same family. Now, of course, the impulse to get involved in someone else's loans or debts is driven by a desire to help, right? But doesn't that all change? That all changes. That wonderful little helpful dynamic suddenly changes. When the daughter-in-law, who took the $5,000 loan from mother and father-in-law, catches the disapproving glance of mother-in-law when they talk about the vacation that they're going to take when they still owe mom and dad 5000 bucks, Right? You're going to what? Oh, hmm. And we know what the glance means, of course, right? It, the glance means that um, you are on an unspoken spending leash. We didn't say that. We didn't put that in writing anywhere. But you are on an unspoken spending leash until the loan is repaid. And so you better check in with well-meaning mother-in-law or father-in-law when you buy toilet paper or else they're going to get extremely upset. And friends, it's just the dynamic. I know of a fact. I mean, I know of a couple. And they continue to take money from the husband's rich father. And all that did was in- encourage dysfunction at both ends. The father thought he had a right to meddle in his son's affairs because he kept underwriting their lifestyle. And that really bugged the couple. But then my son, uh, or the son in the, it's not my son, sorry. You thought there's a Freudian slip with this. It's not my son. All right. I'm just... I'm just glad I didn't blurt out the name. So then the, uh, the son uh, never learned to cut the purse strings. Incredibly dysfunctional on this side. He kept taking the money. And, and then finally it ended when, when they moved uh, a long way away. Look, God would say, you want to help somebody out? Is that what you want? You want to help somebody out? Give them money. Jesus says, Give. And expect nothing in return. But if you don't have the money to give, you don't have the money because you can't afford it, you can't afford not to get it back, well, then don't sign up to pay it. Because statistically, likely, you will wind up paying it. And the relationship will be painfully affected. That's just wisdom, friends. Second way in which debt introduces pain is that it introduces the pain of excessive earning pressures. You saw that in our drama this morning. You saw it in the O'Hare's video. They just were very transparent with you today. I love their honesty and their bravery to tell you their story. They They just were under terrible earning pressures. Look, couples split because of debt. 
It happens. Just, it happens all the time. Now, when the divorce papers are drawn up, they don't often or maybe ever put debt in there. But really, it's often the reason behind irreconcilable differences. Because money pressures kept adding up and adding up and adding up. What happens is, what a couple does, is what every other American couple does, they develop an artificial lifestyle based on the tenuous thread of a million minimum payments. Every single one looks unbelievably doable. 50 bucks a month, who can't do that? 75 bucks a month, anybody can do that. But suddenly you stack them all up and a whole bunch of minimums add up to a maximum. In other words, maxed out. And the couple's maxed out. And now it's overtime. And if you don't get overtime, you're not making it. And incredible earning pressures put stress on the relationship. I've seen couples making over $100,000 a year, but they're up to their maximum in their artificial lifestyle, sustained by consumer credit, and they start to bicker, and they're fighting more and more, and they're looking at the other person, and your spending habits, and your spending habits, and then they start to feel trapped. I'm never getting out. Okay, and that's just the status quo. And then add to that tenuous mix the unthinkable. What? An interruption in income, right? Somebody loses a job. Somebody gets sick, like really sick. And suddenly, when you thought you were just treading water, now you're going under. And now it's a disaster, right? Now it's a disaster. It went from pressure to disaster. Proverbs 21, verse 20. God says, The wise man saves for the future but the foolish person spends whatever he gets. If you want to be released from earning pressures, you have to ask yourself a question, AC3. Where's your reserve? Like the fool spends everything, right? This much comes in, and you say to yourself, I'm being very responsible. This much comes in, and I only spend this much. I just spend all the way to this end. The Bible says that's foolish because it assumes that nothing bad will ever happen to you. It assumes that the unthinkable could never happen to you. So you have to start asking yourself the question, do I have any reserve, or, I just, or do, I, do I just spend everything that I get and then some? Like, here's everything I have, and I'll spend all this, oh, and I'll spend this much OPM, right? Other people's money. You should start thinking right now, AC3, and, and, and some Christian financial counselors will, will differ on this, but three to six months of your income should be stored away somewhere. Why? Because the unthinkable might happen to you. It just might. And why would you bank on it not happening when we live in a fallen and broken world? And in this particular cultural milieu, in this particular economy, and you would assume that nothing bad could ever happen to you? Doesn't make sense, does it? And God says, if you're wise, you'll do that. If you're dumb, you'll just spend every penny that comes in and more. And we call that OPM, living on other people's money. So our problem AC3... Often, and I, will, I want you to hear this, not always. But our problem often is not a lack of income. Like I said, there's people in this particular situation, and they're making six figures. The problem is not a lack of income, it's a lack of discipline. And, and if we had it, that discipline would mitigate earning pressures. Why? Because we wouldn't spend everything that we make. Whether you're making 35 k or you're making 65 k or you're making 105 k and so that leads me, that issue of discipline, that leads me to a, a third issue. Debt might unmask some painful character flaws. All right, so we've all been in the supermarket, right? 
and we've seen the two-year-old throw a crazy nutty fit in the aisle, right? And what are they saying? They're grabbing onto something. Juniors grab something off the aisle and say, I want it, I want it, I want it now, 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 now. And when it's your kid, like, you're just, like, so embarrassing, right? Like, oh, dang it, I can't discipline the kid in the store. And, um, and then, you know, if it's somebody else's kid, you can judge them for what terrible parents that they are. Uh, but all of us, you know, we've all seen that petulant, selfish, impatience, and we all know, okay, it's a two-year-old. And that's, that's just a sign of immaturity. It's like par for the course. It's like they're fulfilling their job description. You're two. You're just full of passion and not a lot of reason, and not a lot of moral development, and not a lot of developed character. It's just a sign of just being immature. So you'd think, wouldn't you, that as we mature, that we learn something that the two-year-old doesn't have yet. This delayed gratification. You can't have it now. Maybe you could have it later. Maybe way later, or maybe if you did a few things, then it could come into your life. Maybe we'd learn these sorts of things. Maybe we'd see life with a long-term lens, because that's what maturity does, right? It says, oh, right, so if I do this thing, then there's this, this thing happens immediately. Oh, but then this and this and this happens just after that. And maturity brings the long lens, right? Unless we remain perpetually two-year-olds. Now, how would that happen? Who would underwrite you remaining a two-year-old for the rest of your life. Banks, that's who. Visa. Visa wants you to be a two-year-old for the rest of your life. So that when you say, I want it, I want it, I want it, now, 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 you can always have it. Debt paves the way. And the 1% are giddy. You know, we're all angry about the 1%, right? In our day, the income gap, and it's true, there is a widening income gap in our day and age. If you really want to stick it to the 1%, here's what you do. Get off their debt mechanisms because the 1% are controlling you through offering you credit. They're killing you. They're killing the poor in this country. Payday loans, did you see that from Brandy and and Michael O'Hare? They got ensnared in what is the worst form of loan sharking that our culture has to offer. A, a, a despicable practice that feeds on the poor. And it's run by rich people. You want to stick it to people you think are abusive in their use and their collection and hoarding of wealth. Get out of debt. Because that's how they're making money. And as the news tightens, we see underneath our usage of debt is really a series of character issues. Yeah, I mean, so we say it's circumstantial, and I might be, you know, experiencing job loss. That's a horrible tragedy. Uh, There's income pressures. There's expanding inflation. There's all sorts of external circumstances, but AC3, would we have the courage to pull the, the layer off of those circumstances and look underneath at other things that might be driving the boat, like a lack of contentment? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. See, contentment, satisfaction says, I have enough. And debt was the result of saying, never enough. It's not enough. That's a beautiful word. I think we need to relearn it. And contentment, AC3, is a character thing. Can we agree to that? Contentment is a character thing. Now, maybe I've opened up a whole can of worms by this, what, just mentioning contentment, because then you start asking yourself the question, wait a minute, why am I not satisfied? 
Like, why am I not content? What actually is going on beneath that? Maybe it's patience. Patience is a character thing. Maybe it's self-control. And self-control is a character thing. Maybe it's a lack of trust in God, and that's a spiritual character thing. And getting down to now the spiritual aspect of debt, that verse that I just read from Hebrews, I didn't read the whole sentence. Let me read the whole thing. Your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he, God, he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, maybe you've never looked at it this way, but perhaps if you read this, you say to yourself, wait a minute, my debt might be a direct snub in the face of the goodness of God. Because what debt said is, I don't believe you that you will never leave me and that you'll never forsake me. That is why we should be content because we can lean on a good God who says, I've got you. You may go through lean years. You may go through the valley of the shadow of death, my friend. But I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. See, there are times, and I'll just speak confessionally now. There are times when I think God's not coming through and I just need to go get it. Like, I don't know if I can really trust him in this moment. And I'm not so sure he's coming through on his promise. So I'm just going to kind of run ahead of him a little bit. You know, I can't afford it. I didn't show the discipline. I didn't show the hard work. I didn't show the self-control. I didn't show the patience to have it legitimately. So I'm just going to do an end around. I'm going to do a little shortcut over here. But maybe if I waited, maybe God might meet my need in a miraculous way. And if I just trusted him and didn't run out ahead of him and go into debt to go get something, maybe I could learn something that my two-year-old doesn't know. That I can just relax in the care of my heavenly father. There's a story that illustrates this. It's not really about debt, but the transferable principle is powerful. There's King David, right? And some of you have read the story. So here it happens in, in 1 Samuel. Uh, Second Samuel, actually, where David is displaying an amazing lack of contentment. He's the king, right? And the king has everything. He's got wealth. He's got power. He's got sex. He's got the whole thing. He's got everything that you think you want in life. And he still feels the need to steal another man's wife through adultery, deception, and finally, murder. Now, you know what God said to him after he was confronted about all that whole thing? I, this is an amazing statement. Here's what God says to David. He says, David. I gave you everything. I gave you all the stuff. I gave you the kingdom. And if all of that had been too little, I would have given you many things more. That's a fascinating thing to come out of the mouth of God, isn't it? Look, if all of this was too little, I would have given you many things more. It's like God saying, look, I, I, I would have been gracious with you if you just waited. I, I had good things in store for you if you just asked. If you just patiently uh, rested on my good care, you would have found me to be a good and loving father, but you didn't. You ran out ahead and unlawfully acquired for things, uh, acquired for yourself things uh, through sin. And so I just think about this, friend. The way you handle your money is saying something about your character and it's saying something about your relationship with God and maybe you've never looked at it that way before. You've never said, oh, my dad is actually telling me a story about how I am with Jesus. And if you love the Lord Jesus here this morning, that ought to matter to you. That your debt situation is saying something vividly. It is a status report, perhaps, on your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. 
Now, here's a, a fourth thing, and we'll end with this. A debt extends the pain in this world because it ties your hands when God calls you to give. So there's another painful thing that's happening with debt. And it's not happening in your life. It's happening in the lives of hurting and needy people around you and around the world. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the most famous story in the whole Bible. What is it? The Good Samaritan. Everybody knows this story, right? Inside the church and outside the church, here's a guy. He stops by an injured man who was robbed and then left for dead on the side of the road when two religious leaders just walked right on by. And so this Good Samaritan... uh, uh, tends to the man's need and we celebrate his compassion and we celebrate his lack of racial prejudice this is a samaritan ministering to a jew two ethnic groups that are deeply divided we celebrate all that stuff but you know we don't celebrate that we should a little bit more we don't celebrate his money management because when a need popped up in the man's life he reached into his pocket and there was something there to give I mean, the Bible says he gives quite a bit. He had discretionary income. He had excess. He had margin. See, when he saw a need, he reached in and and he could share. He took the injured man to an inn, Jesus said. He paid for the medical and lodging expenses, Jesus said. And then he promised to cover any cost overruns when he returned from a business trip, Jesus said. That's a fantastic bit of opportunity that was only available because the man wasn't leveraged up to his eyeballs and just barely making it, spending everything that he brought in. So the Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. I want you to really focus on what the principle is here. The thief must steal no longer, Paul says to that church. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Now you're saying, I don't get it, Rick. What's the relevance? Here's the relevance. I know that you're not a thief, probably. Um, But the thief and the debtor have this in common. They're both on the OPM plan. Right? Thief and the debtor are both on the OPM plan. One is legitimate, the other is illegitimate. One's lawful, the other is unlawful. But really, functionally, at that level, it's the same. They're both on the other people's money plan. And look, I know that debt isn't the same as theft, obviously, uh, uh, from a moral context. But when you don't repay, and, and a lot of us don't, you know, when it comes down to bankruptcy or foreclosure or default, then it kind of sort of is. Took that person's money, and they're never getting it back. Now, I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to be honest. And I think God would say, hey, listen, what if, what if we all got off the OPM plan, we all just got off that plan, and we started making some money of our own? That's what Paul is saying. Get off the OPM plan and make your own money. And Dave Ramsey will tell you this over and over. He says, your income is your greatest wealth builder. You think, no, my greatest wealth builder is when I leverage myself into a fancy plan and then it's going to have a huge return on the back end. A great get-rich-quick scheme or something like that. Uh Uh-uh. Dave Ramsey says, your income is your greatest wealth generator. And so... Uh, basically God is saying, look, you, you, you start getting off the OPM plan, you start making some money of your own, and, and there will be now a generation of wealth. Now, we want to get to the end game. So why would we begin to work with our hands? What's the end game? So that, so that what? So that I become rich? Well, actually, you might. You really start focusing on your income as a wealth builder. You might get rich, and you don't even have to make a lot of money to do so, guess what? You put away 10% of a $60,000 a year salary for 30 years at a 10% growth rate in a mutual fund, which is pretty realistic. 
you would have a million dollars at the end of 30 years. And that's just math. Okay, but that's not the end game. That's, that, that might happen. You start working with your hands, and now you've got a positive income stream in your life, and it's not an exorbitant salary at all, and you might get rich. But God says, what is the end game when you get off the OPM plan? The end game is generosity. The end game is generosity. How many of you can say this about yourself? I've been hamstrung. I've been hamstrung from doing the generous thing that I know deep in my heart that God wanted me to do because I was in debt. Because I just leveraged. I'm loaded down. What if, what if, let's just paint the picture. What if you didn't have a car payment? That's like 400 bucks a month. That's a raise. That's a really nice raise. What if you didn't have a car payment? Like what if, what if you, you didn't have a mortgage? And I know we just kind of assume these things, don't we? We just I, I got a friend, and, and he just had it locked in. He said, I got, I'm going to have a car payment and a mortgage for the rest of my life, forever and ever, amen, until I die. He just had it as, you know, bought a new car or a used car, as the case may be, but he had a payment, traded in every three years. He just traded in like clockwork. He always had a payment. He just counted on it. What if you didn't have that? What if you had no car payment? What if, crazy thought here, I know, it's really nuts. What if you didn't have a mortgage? Now, the question is, what would you do with all that money? Some of you, that would release up to $2,000 every single month. What would you do with all that money? Well, you'd say, oh, I think I'd save. I definitely would save more because retirement is looking really thin right now. All right, great. You should do that. That would be a God-honoring part of your financial plan. What else? Well, I'd pay the bills. Good, so you wouldn't go into more debt. Awesome, that's excellent. But what else? What would you do? Go to Hawaii every year? Buy a new car every three years? AC3, please. You were brought, if you have submitted your life to the leadership of Jesus Christ, you were brought out of darkness into his wonderful light for something more than that. And listen, I have no problem with buying a car or going to Hawaii. I'm just saying, what's the end game? Is that the end game? If you were completely debt-free, what would be the reason? Listen, you take responsibility for yourself. As Paul says, you work hard with your hands. And when these biblical habits begin to uh, result directly in a positive income stream in your life, the end game is hoarding, more spending. No, give. The end game is give. You live like nobody else when it comes to debt retirement. So you spring like a gazelle out of the trap. And at the end of the day, you can give like no one else. You can give like no one else. Give to God's purposes in the world. Share. Man, what would the American church be able to do if it wasn't shackled by car debt, college debt, consumer debt, home equity debt, mortgage debt? Friend, we would rock the world. We would rock the world. Because God has uniquely placed us in history as the richest Christians who have ever lived. We sing a song around here. It's uh, the line in the song. uh, We won't sing it today, but it'll cycle around. Something so powerful should shake the whole wide world. And it's a song that brings to mind how God just shook you up when he forgave all your sin and entered your life with peace and joy and hope. And it's really cool. But some of you maybe sing that song and go, shake the whole wide world. Hmm. Is Christianity shaking the whole wide world? When's the Holy Spirit going to wake up and start shaking the whole wide world? 
But then maybe you're not thinking about it like this. Like the grace of Jesus should be so transformative that its recipients shake the world. What if each person in this church was debt free? Just fantasize with me for a second. Whoa, imagine a world where every person in the church was debt free. We wouldn't just shake this town with unprecedented levels of compassion and change lives. We would change thousands of lives in Malawi and in Pakistan and in Brazil. See, AC3, I believe that the grace of Christ is so rich, it's so freeing that you should get addicted to the freedom of it. Because Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Almost as if freedom was the end game. Like God just wanted you to spring free from every trap. From every trap. Free, first of all, from the onerous burden of the law to be made right with God. That you had to climb up the moral mountain. Free from that trap. And in the grace of Jesus, free from the expectations of others. I'm not going to be judged by any of you. I'm free of that. And in the gospel, free from my own past sins and the guilt burden that they put on me. I'm free of that trap. Free from the power of sin to control my every move. Because now, because of the Holy Spirit inside, I am becoming a different person. And I'm free to be new. And in the gospel of Jesus, I am free from the powers of evil that literally, the Bible says, want to devour me. I'm free of that. Through the power of Jesus Christ alive in me. And when I have all this freedom... What do I want to do with it? Bring myself back under the shackles of financial slavery. That doesn't make any sense. Paul says living in Christ makes you the best neighbor. You know why? Because you are a burden to no man, but you gladly and freely begin to lift the burdens of every man. That's what that verse says. You understand? In Christ, you develop habits such that you become a burden to no man. Why? Because you're working with your hands, you're taking care of yourself. But then you gladly and freely begin to lift the burdens of every man so that you may have something to share with those in need. Can't that be us? We stop talking in this place. If this could be us, we'd stop talking about just making budget around here, you know. We'll do, you know, we come into the annual meeting, we say, here's the budget, and here's the income, and maybe we'll... You know, a little tenuous every year, whether we get there or not. You know, we'd stop talking like that. We really would if everybody in this room was debt-free. We'd start talking about filling a building fund to our goal, which would allow this building that we've been renting like for a million years to be bought without debt. And you know what? If that happened, we'd release something like $5,700 every single month into our operating budget. And that just is ministry. That's just service to the kingdom purposes of Jesus. I mean, that's what would happen. We'd start uh, talking about unleashing new leaders into new ministry positions, full-time ministry in junior and senior high. We'd start talking about how we could find low-income housing to lift the working poor off the street, a vision we've had for a while, we've got no resource for it. We'd start talking about funding new work and new workers around the world, Right here, right now, like the diesels idling by the side of the road, ready to go. The workers are plentiful. The resources are few. Oh, but when you're backed up and nostril deep in debt, and this wonderful opportunity comes along to help a loved one or to buy groceries for your neighbor or to help the poor or to step into a full 10% tithe, according to all these things, what happens? Your heart does one thing. Your pocketbook does another. Your heart says, oh, I'd love to be a part of what God is doing in the world. And your heart says, no, the master says we can't do that. 
So when you're done with the pain of debt, AC3, three things. Number one, you need to make a radical decision to end your slavery. Two, you need to analyze your, your financial situation to see what's the offending element. Is it big ticket items, cars too big, or cars too new, houses too big? Like a gazelle, like a gazelle. Get out of your situation, whatever it happens to be. Is it the credit cards, plastic surgeries required? Figure out what the offending element is, right? And then finally, get on a plan. And we're just suggesting to you, we've got one for you. We've got the training. It's right here at your fingertips, FPU. You sign up, you do it, you get a plan. But whatever it is, AC3, I just remind you again that God is a debt-canceling God. And if the Father sent the Son to carry your sin debt, why would you want to live for any more seconds than you absolutely have to under the burden of financial debt? And I'll leave you with that. Let's pray together. Father, debt-canceling God, we thank you that the Son of Man came to ransom what was lost. And in ransoming our lives, Father, may we get addicted to the freedom that he has brought to us. So we want to bask in it this morning. We want to celebrate it this morning. And when we get up tomorrow morning, God, we want to be on a plan that would liberate ourselves in every way in our lives, including financially, according to your good word, according to your promise, and according to Jesus' teaching. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen. Well, AC.